Matthew chapter 17, uh, we are continuing our journey through the gospel of Matthew. Uh, I love what we're talking about today. I love this scene, this uh, important, amazing, monumental moment in the life and the ministry of Christ with his disciples. And so we're going to be looking at this. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. Uh, this will certainly be familiar to you, and uh, I'm excited about talking about it. So this is how it goes. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, his garments became white as light, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them. Talking with him, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You get a tent, and you get a tent, and you get a tent. Look under your chair. There's a tent. While he was still speaking, it doesn't say that, uh, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of that cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground and they were terrified. And Jesus came to them. He touched them and he said, get up, don't be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Uh, such a, uh, an amazing, um, unexpected moment for these guys. Jesus takes uh, casually. He's like, hey, Peter, James, John, you guys want to go for a little bit of a hike? And they're like, yeah, that sounds great. Now, there's a little conjecture as to where they hiked, uh, what mountain this is. Uh, there's, there's kind of two schools of thought. Uh, one would be it's a mountain called Tabor, which is a, a very high point in the region. Uh, another thought, which I would probably um, agree with, would be it's, it's Mount Hermon. Uh, because six days prior, uh, as it mentions here, we were in verse or chapter 16, and that was the whole conversation Jesus had. If you wish to come after me, you have to take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. Uh, all that happened in the area, the Bible says that Jesus was in the area of Caesarea Philippi, and, and so that uh, would be where Mount Hermon is located. And so it would be a closer hike. Uh, but ultimately... Who cares which mountain? Because it's all the same to us. Um, it was on Lookout Mountain, actually, uh, where this happened. And so then, something that is quite important and significant, Jesus is transfigured. Uh, a metamorphosis happens where he looks physically different. And this is what the Bible says. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. What? is that all about? So suddenly Peter looks up and says, Hey, Jesus, I was going to admit, Whoa! And he came and look at him. He's shining. He's, he's irradiant. He is, he's iridescent. He is glowing. He is looking completely different, transfigured. What is this? Well, I believe that this is a, a glimpse of Jesus' post-resurrection heavenly form. And uh, I'll tell you why I think that. This is uh, a vision that John, who was there uh, on the scene this day, 
he has a vision of what heaven is and what it looks like, detailed vision. And uh, you find this in Revelation, and, and, and in chapter 21, he makes this statement, The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and the lamb, the lamb is the light. The Lamb himself, Jesus himself, is the light. There's a statement six days prior. This is the last thing Jesus says uh, in chapter 16 before we get to this moment. And so he says this statement, which is cryptic. But it makes sense if you look at it in this context. There are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well... That's just not true. That's just not true. Because all of these people are no longer with us. And Jesus has not returned. But I think what he was saying is there are some here, three of them, who are going to see the Son of Man as he comes from the kingdom, as he, he is in his kingdom form, as he is in his heavenly form. And so six days later, this transpires, this happens. And so um, I, I think it's pretty clear, and uh, it, it, is, it is clear to me anyway, that this is Jesus in his transfigured, post-resurrection, heavenly form. And so these three gentlemen get to see a glimpse of coming attract, attractions. They, sit, they get a sneak peek of what's before them, a glorified Savior. And because Jesus is glorified, so will they be also. And so not only that, as if that wasn't wild and wacky enough that Jesus is uh, completely transfigured, they also look up and they see Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah, just casually shooting the breeze with Moses and Elijah, heroes of the faith, gentlemen that these guys have heard about their entire lives. Now, I I think it's uh, just important to point out and, and this is something I haven't really thought about until this week. They obviously recognized who they were. There was a recognition uh, on the disciples' behalf of who these people are. It, it doesn't document Jesus introduced, hey, Peter, Elijah, Elijah, Peter, John, James. This is Moses. Have you guys met? There wasn't any of that. They weren't alive. They were, they were, uh, these two gentlemen were far gone by the time these three disciples were on the scene. But they knew there was something super, supernatural, spiritual, heavenly. There was something in the air that was happening where they, they looked up and they're like, Elijah and Moses. Because they knew who it was. So Jesus is talking to them. And Peter decides at that moment where Jesus, transfigured Jesus, is talking to Moses and Elijah in this amazing supernatural event that's never been documented in history before. This is something completely weird. And Peter, who is a, a fisherman like 10 minutes ago, who, who has done pretty much nothing so far, decides, I'm going to say something. <laughs> is, this, is this thing on? Excuse me, gentlemen. It is I. Peter, uh, in this what he says, it's a good thing I'm here. You're welcome. It's a very good thing that I'm here. I've come to make your day. Check this out. I know you guys have done amazing things. Jesus, pretty impressive. Moses, Elijah, great job. 
Five stars. But I, I can make a tent. (laughs) Not just one, guys. Three. I can make three tents. That is, it's like a hat trick of tents. I can do three of them. And not even bat an eyelash. I can make you guys tents. That is his gift to them. And so Jesus is talking to them. Uh, Peter interrupts. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, um, there was this custom, this event, this, this thing that happened in the, in the Jewish culture, in the lives of Jewish people. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was an annual occurrence that happened in the fall. And it was a week uh, that they would take. And as family, as community, they would, uh, they would camp in the wilderness. And they would do this for really two, two reasons. Number one, obviously, this is looking back and commemorating God's faithfulness to their ancestors, bringing them out of Egypt, into, out of captivity, into the promised land. And they would, obviously, they were camping in the wilderness. And so this is to commemorate God's faithfulness in the wilderness. But also, it was uh, done in the anticipation of the coming of the new kingdom that God is going to establish his new kingdom and, and bring them into the fold. And so this is uh, a, a, year, a yearly annual event. And so most New Testament chronographers who would study the, the, the chronological, chronological order of things in the New Testament have surmised that, uh, that, that, that the, 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 the crucifixion, the arrest and crucifixion of Christ happened about six months after this particular event, and uh, which uh, putting it in the fall on the calendar, and, uh, and and most likely during the festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, and so uh, I'm trying to give Peter some credit. Maybe what he said was very timely, and it was on front of mind. Uh, it was something that was uh, a natural religious response to what was occurring here. And, uh, and so this is the Feast of Tabernacles. This is what we do. This is, this is, I want to bring these guys into the fold, into the, the ritual of what we do. And so let's go ahead and celebrate this, inaugurate God's kingdom. Maybe his kingdom is here. Let's go ahead and set it up now because here we go. Uh, and so he's looking to build tabernacles for all three. And so maybe he was being quite timely. But there's something, there's, a, there's an impulse that causes him to speak out and interrupt. This is not something that um, he would have done probably if he didn't feel somewhat confident in what he was bringing to the table. And what he's bringing to the table is this natural religious performance impulse. He kicks into religious performance. It's natural for him. In fact, I would say of Peter, this happened a lot. That he just kind of defaulted to this very natural religious performance where he's trying, aiming to please, aiming to impress God. And, uh, and so what he is encapsulating with this offer is our end of the bargain and what we can do for God. What we bring to the table. That's his natural thought. I've grown up in church since the very beginning, my entire life. I've been in church. I've never really not been in church. I've been in church my whole life. And there's uh, certainly 
in my experience growing up, there is no shortage of religious performance. It is natural for all of us. There is something inside of us that just gravitates towards performing in a religious sense. Doing. There is so much doing. Good-hearted, good-intentioned doing. A friend of mine had a t-shirt. It said, Jesus is coming soon, look busy. Uh, which I always liked. I was just jealous of that T-shirt. Um, it's a great T-shirt, but but I think that is a natural religious lean of all of ours. Is what have you done for the Lord lately? What are you doing? You ever talk to people and you're not you're, you're like you're not doing anything for God. You're doing everything for you. Nothing for God whatsoever. You better you better pick it up. He's coming soon. This world is in shambles. It's chaos going on. We don't know how much time we got left. Tick, tick, tick. Get busy. There's a great song. Uh, one of my favorite artists in the 90s was called Crystal Lewis, who was amazing. People get ready. Jesus is coming. To be going home. So good. So Actually, I got a little teary right there. Uh, I loved her. I love Crystal Lewis so much. And uh, But there was that, that, that constant sentiment that... that God's on his way. You, you're going to have to get some stuff accomplished. Uh, which I understand, that's in me too. That, that impulse, I've not, I've not squelched that. I've not lost that. It's still in me as well. But I, I think that historically, there's been so much attention to doing that maybe we, we miss a priority that God himself interrupts Peter with and introduces here as a priority, and that is listening. I think there's so much doing that we lose our, our, our inclination to listen. There's a, one of my, my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Be still, cease striving, and know that he is God. That know that he's in control, that he's in charge, that he's got it. Be still. Stop. Cease striving. Striving. Just stop already. God interrupts with this, this priority. The Bible says it this way. While he was still speaking, Peter, uh, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, an audible voice. God himself audibly interrupts you. You know you're not on the right path when God himself is like, <laughs> excuse me. And this is what God said. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, he's, the, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased part. He said before audibly at Jesus' baptism. That, that was exactly what was said. But he adds to it. Listen to him. God himself interrupted Peter's religious impulse, which was to build tabernacles, which was to, to, to do for. Now, when Peter was offering to build three tabernacles, he, he, he clarifies. He said, I'll build three because Jesus gets one, Elijah gets one, Moses gets one. Even in his religious inclination to do for, for them, you can see that he puts 
these three people, these three names, these three important figures on the same playing field. There is equality amongst them. Jesus, Elijah, Moses, equal playing field, and they all get a tabernacle because they're all equally important. God interrupts and clarifies, no, absolutely not. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So the hierarchy that Peter had in his head, Jesus is, or God himself is, he's clarifying that. He's correcting it. Like, nope. Now, the significance, why Moses, why Elijah? Two significant figures, but there's lots of significant figures in the Bible. Well, they, they represent two very significant aspects of the history of our belief system. Elijah represents the prophets of God, the way in which God spoke to his people. And their job were, they were, he was, Elijah was a forerunner. He would, he would basically blaze the trail and, and set up the story for Jesus to come. Now, Moses represents the law of God. He was the one whom God delivered his commandments to his people through. And so he was a messenger of the law. And so here we have Jesus communing with uh, the prophets and the law. And so basically in, in this equation, Peter says the law, the prophets, Jesus, they're all the same. And God's like, no, absolutely not. The Father is clarifying. This is my beloved Son. It, this reminded me this week. I was, I was reading this, and I, I thought of uh, a statement Jesus makes in John chapter 5, where he's correcting uh, some religious scholars, and he says this, You search the Scriptures, you, you search the, the text, because you think that in them, in the words on the page, you have eternal life, but it's these that testify about me. The point of the law was not the law. The point of the prophets was not the prophets. They all were placeholders, forerunners, trailblazer, trailblazers to set up what, who Jesus is, the arrival of our Savior. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of all prophecy. He is, he is the point. He is the message. In him we have everything. And God is saying that. This is my beloved. Listen to him. You're no longer under the law. You're under him. You're no longer uh, bound to the prophets, prophecies and, and, and hanging on every word. Now, now, we would be more acclimated to religious impulses towards the law, which I, I get. And, and I know we, 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 we probably have all experienced that growing up. That there's, there's some intentionality to... Uh, keeping the law and being stewards of the law. Now, the prophecy side may not affect us as directly, but I know that growing up in church, as I did, there was no shortage of religious performance, like Peter. There was certainly no shortage of policing the law and people's behavior, and there was no shortage of prediction. 
which be in, in the form of prophecy. There was no shortage of that. And it may have come through a prophet or not, but, but ultimately people were always looking for signs. They're always trying to predict what's next, always looking to, well, well God will do this, and this is what I think is going to happen, and always predicting, always looking above the horizon. I can't tell you, I'm 46, cannot tell me how many times uh, a, a worldwide prophecy of the end of the world and the date has come along, and I've lived through and survived every single one of them. Jesus is the fulfillment of both of those things. He is everything. In him we have been made complete. The disciples, when they hear God, they fall down. And the Bible says they are terrified. They are completely terrified. You would be too. If God audibly talked out of a cloud, you would fall on your face too. But I love the juxtaposition here in the story. We get this... simultaneously we get this incredible sense of the sheer magnitude of the glory of God. How big and powerful and amazing he is. At the same time, in the same moment, we get this picture how loving and near, close he is. So God speaks audibly. This is my beloved son. They're terrified. Jesus puts his hand on them, touches them, and says, guys, Get up. Don't be scared. Don't be afraid. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's a picture of how God is both over everything and he's with us through everything. He's over everything and he's with us through everything. He's over it. He's big. He's huge. He's he's majestic. He's to be worshipped. But at the same time, he's closer than a brother. He's near us and with us. I want to I I zero in on this last sentence as we begin wrapping up. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. There are countless things that contend for our attention and our focus and our affection There are countless things that that try to to pull us in, to have us, to own us, to to have a monopoly on our time and our energy and our focus and our care and our heart and our love and our thoughts. There's so many things that want to lead us and direct us and push us and guide us. There are so many things that, that want the driver's seat in our lives. God interrupts those compulsions in Peter. That's what he's doing. He's interrupting any other thought, even if, even if those compulsions are by definition good. He interrupts those and he brings him back to the starting point. Uh, there's a, a song lyric that came up in my, in my brain this week because my head's a jukebox and, and uh, I was thinking of Coldplay's uh, The Scientist uh, song, which is a great song, but it, there's, that, there's that line, I'll take you back to the start. Take me back to the start. God is doing that. He's bringing them back to the start. He's bringing them back to where it all begins. He's like, guys, I know you get busy, you get headlong, you get, you get going, and you, you, you just the momentum carries you, and, 
and life's all about conquering mountains and, and taking ground and, and, and accomplishing and doing and checking boxes. And I'm bringing you back to this, where everything begins, the source. It is in him I am well pleased. It is Jesus that I am well pleased in. This is where I find my pleasure. This is what has my heart. If you want the heart of God, go right to his son. In fact, the Bible says that there's no knowing the father but through the son. That's the only access point to the heart of God. He's the door. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He is the only way. There's no other way. There's no amount of good, good, good intentions and good actions and good, good morals and no amount of, of accomplishments and resumes that we can, hand, we, can, we can throw before God and say, how's that? That's the depart from me, I never knew you conversation. I, you, that don't impress me much. How many, how many song lyrics can I quote this, this message? I'm not impressed by that. If you think this God of the universe who was over everything, created everything, is impressed by the fact that we, are, we were nice at the DMV and we did not cuss, then you need to think twice. Everything begins and ends with Jesus. That's the conversation here. The book of Romans says that everything is from him, it's through him, and it's to him. That's it. He is everything. He's the starting point. He's the method in which we live life, live, breathe, have our being. It's all to his glory, to his benefit, to elevating him. The law was not our ticket to goodness. And this is something I, need, I think needs clarification. Again, we're, we're more attached to the law. We're more familiar with the laws as, as, in terms of practice. The law is not our ticket to goodness. Just think about the law in general. Let's talk about the law of the land, the speed, the speed limit, and the, the different laws that we have in our polite society to keep us all in, within the guardrails of being polite members of that society. Those laws don't make people good. Good people are the ones that keep those laws. Can we be honest? The laws don't make people good. Good people are the ones that keep the laws. Bad people don't keep the laws because they're bad. People assume and they preach and they believe God gave the law to make bad people into good people. No, the the people that keep those laws are the people who are by definition, good. In fact, the Bible says that the law was given not that it would squelch sin, but that sin might increase. It threw gasoline on the fire. The law made it worse. Because suddenly now it's a conversation and like I'm just focusing on the law. That, That doesn't give us any leverage over sin whatsoever. The law gives no leverage over Sin. It does not empower anyone to be good. The law is only kept by good people. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the law because no one can do it. And then he does something infinitely greater. And that is he extends his goodness, his righteousness to us. In him, we are good. As he is, so are you. 
We, he gives us a new heart. He gives us new intentions. He gives us a new spirit. He gives us something that is reinvigorated, that is made alive. We read it this morning. Uh, you, you, he didn't find you bad. He found you dead in your transgressions. God didn't take you from the naughty list and move you to the nice list. He resurrected the dead, the spiritually dead. And they put inside of you a new heart. We have the heart of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We're new creations in Christ. Behold, I'm making all things new. The Apostle Paul has this conversation. It's, it's dramatic in the book of Romans where he says, I, the things that I want to do, I don't do those things. And the things I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. Wretched man that I am. Who can save me from this body of sin and death? And you go look at that as a discouraging conversation to say, man, the guy's not doing what he wants to do. How sad is that? That's all of us. But the, the important thing to look at is what he wants to do is what is good. That's the new heart. He wants to do good. Now, he may fail because he's flesh, but he wants to do good. He says, I don't want to do the bad things. That is a new creation in Christ because the flesh wants to do what's wrong. There's a fascination with the naughty. There's a a gravitational pull towards licentious behavior, breaking the rules. There just is. And on the other side of that same coin is, is this... This natural lean to perform and to impress and to to judge and to criticize, it's a self-righteousness. It's the older brother in the prodigal son story and the younger brother. Two sides, same coin. One's trying to save his, his, redeem his life by breaking the rules. The other's trying to redeem his life by keeping the rules. The only freedom we find is with God, with the Father, by way of the Son, Jesus. This glorified Jesus was standing before Peter. His attention was on himself instead of this glorified, glowing, radiant Christ. He turns his attention to, good thing I'm here. It's the wrong mirror he's looking into. He's looking in the wrong mirror. And I want to close with one last scripture here. And I think this parallels so much with what we're looking at today. This is life looking into the right mirror. This is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, we're just going to read verses 13 through 18. Um, This is how it goes. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face. Now, this alludes to Moses' transfiguration, which he got a little glimpse of what was to come as he beholds the back of of God. He used to put a veil over his face so the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away because it would not remain. Their minds were hardened for until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the law, even the prophets, the same veil remains unlifted because it's removed in Christ. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart, But whenever a person turns to the Lord, that's a picture of repentance, turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, it's taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and with the Spirit of the Lord there is liberty, there's freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, 
beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being ourselves transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. It's beautiful. How are we transformed? How do we become practically what God has made us positionally? God has made us new creations. How do we live and act like new creations? How do we, how do we allow our belief system and our trust and belief in Christ to become our actual everyday practice? How do we do what we know is right? How do we become the person that we all want to become? Well, it's not by doing. It's not religious impulse. It's not by adding more rules. It's not by predicting more outcomes and seeking more signs. We become transformed as we behold Jesus. As we fix our eyes on him who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Beholding as in a mirror. This is my true self. Beholding as a mirror the scriptures that paint the picture of who God is. We don't find salvation in the words. All these testify about Jesus. We're not saved by what Jesus taught. We're not saved by the words that people said about Jesus. We're saved by Jesus. We are transformed by him. As we behold the glory, the majesty, the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, it starts to change us. We all want, all of us want 2024 to be a wonderful year. We do. And I do believe that there are certain things that we can do, that we can prioritize that will certainly raise the quality and the significance and the meaningfulness of this year, which we're going to talk about every Sunday here at Family Church. But ultimately, uh, I've learned my lesson. I, I have made the mistake year after year after year, standing at this pulpit, proclaiming at the beginning of a new year, this will be the greatest year of our entire lives. And I was humbled into realizing that was a tremendous untruth. And it was irresponsible of me to say when I said that at the beginning of 2020. I stood before my church family and I proclaimed, this will be the greatest year you've ever had. And then it was an absolute dumpster fire of a year. I think most of our worst year ever. So I learned my lesson, and I don't do that anymore. But with all confidence, I can say this. This year, there will be wonderful moments that we love and that we treasure. Uh, But I can also say with all honesty... This year will also provide some moments that are incredibly painful for each and every one of us. We will have our hearts broken this year. 
Um, this year, there will be wins and successes for you. And this year, there will certainly be losses. You, you will make up some ground moving towards your dream destination, and you will lose ground this year as well. This year, if we're open and willing, we're going to make some new friends. And also this year, we may most likely watch some good friends walk out of our lives, which is heartbreaking. Ultimately, through every single moment and every step of this new year, this is a promise that Jesus is both over everything and with you through everything. And the greatest resolution that any of us can make is to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is with us. He is for us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And the Bible says, as we behold Jesus, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we are being transformed. That is a glorious promise that I think is so important to keep in front of us this year. Because if we live life in the waves of circumstance, we we're going to feel set, we're going to feel adrift. But there is an anchor for our soul. And it is the hope that we have in our salvation in Christ who has set us free. He has set us free. Free from what? He set us free from our sin. He set us free from the punishment of that sin. He set us free from religious performance. He set us free from checking a million boxes. He set us free from conditionality with him. He set us free from the impossible weight and the pressure of trying to save ourselves. And to live a life that we credit as being meaningful and purposeful and, and good in the eyes of God. He has set us free from all that because he is the one who gives those things. He is our source. It's all from him. It's all through him. It's all to his glory. He is going to do beautiful and miraculous things in and through every single one of us because of his goodness, not ours. So my prayer for all of us is that through everything, the good, the bad, the beautiful and the ugly, the ups and the downs, the feelings of being surrounded by love and being very, very alone in every one of those moments that we would fight to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because he is doing something that we can't see but is far greater than we could ever imagine.